0: Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast, my name is Sammy Warmhands, I am your host, and today my guest is Ryan Sin from The Distillers, and I'm so happy to have him on, not only because they're one of my favorite bands, but he turned out to be just such a genuine and humble fan of music, and I think we really connected on that, and so we're going to talk about Distillers, past and present, and everything in between, from The Innocent to Angels and Airwaves. This is Ryan Sin.
1: Sammy, what's happening?
0: Uh nothing much. How are you?
1: I'm doing all right. Kind of winding down. I just got back. I was out in the camping for the weekend, so oh, really? A fun day of putting everything away.
0: Well, I uh, appreciate you squeezing me in.
1: Yeah, oh, sitting around mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Procrastinating. <laughs> How are you doing, man?
0: Good. I'm a big fan of your work. I guess I'll start before that, though. I want to know more about your origins, because from what I've read, when you joined the Distillers shortly after the first record, you were a guitar player at the time. Yeah. Were you in other bands at that point, or
1: no i grew up in uh, fremont and then like santa cruz area so i started first instrument there's always a piano in the house played that and then played saxophone was my first instrument nice and then drums which was drum lessons which is not playing drums it's playing a pad and it sucks yeah and then uh so yeah so my dad was gonna buy me a drum set for my birthday and uh we went to the store and he saw the price of drum sets, and I got a guitar and a little amp, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, played guitar, like had a few local bands in Fremont. You know, we used to have this thing uh, like punk in the park, and we'd uh, file to get a permit with the city. To have a private event at one of the parks in the city nice and then we would uh, run a generator and have bands play and we had a permit so when the cops showed up to shut it down we'd say sorry it's a private event you're not invited <laughs> and, it act- and it actually worked i missed the 90s <laughs> but then yeah so i just played guitar kind of had a few bands played i don't know maybe a handful of shows in six years yeah. nothing ever stuck and then yeah i knew andy and he uh had asked me if I could play bass and I said, no, and then, <laughs> well, off the top of my head, I could think of people I knew that, you know, oh, he's a way better bassist than me. You shouldn't ask him. And then, uh, the next day it worked, I worked at a comic book kind of, it was more of like a record store that had comics, comics and records. And, uh, That's my boss awesome. told me I was an idiot. Yeah, I know. I was looking <laughs> at your background and like, Oh, wow. I know a lot of that stuff. Yeah. It was a cool store called access records and comics in Alameda kind of just near Oakland, California. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it was a cool shop. Met a lot of cool people there. Uh, but yeah, my boss told me I was an idiot. And <laughs> he said, like, call him back and uh, tell him you play bass. And if it doesn't work out, then you know, I'll see you on Monday or whatever. If, you know, if it does work out, then go have fun. So I called Andy back and said, hey, I have to, you know, thought about it. What's up? I think it was like on a Sunday that I talked to him. And he said, we have rehearsals on Thursday, so learn as much as you can. So I borrowed a bass and a little Marshall amplifier. <laughs> And uh, locked myself in my room for four days and just taught myself the or best I could their first album. Yeah. And uh, tried to learn bass to just as many, you know, records that I had sitting around p- putting stuff on and trying to to learn a lot. I mean, guitar, if you know how to play guitar, you know how to play bass. Yeah. To a degree, you know what I mean? So it was, but I, I wanted to do more than that. and I didn't want to just be like the guy. I felt I had to have some kind of, I don't want to say flair, but like technical ability that was better than the average person, I guess.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of bass players found themselves like everyone else played guitar and they were looking, at, well, you could do it, right? And it's like, fuck, all right, fuck. sure. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, every bass what is that? Every or most bass players are failed guitarists. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us have been through that. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. It was interesting at that time, too, like the second wave of punk rock or whatever it was, in the early 2000s that kind of came through and kind of coming into that scene. Although I had known a few people and been around going to Berkeley, uh, started going to Berkeley Square, um, Gilman Street and like yeah, people in the scene up there, although I knew a handful, it was still now you're coming into a like... Like a level where you're not just hanging out at the show, like you're a part of it. I don't know how to, I don't know the right word. Instead of being a spectator, now now it's a profession. Now yeah. there's judgment, if for lack of a better way to put it. <laughs> so I remember feeling that going into it. And like that scene as far as bass is, you know, that's like Matt Freeman territory at yeah. the time. Like if he okays it, then you're in kind of a vibe. Yeah. It's kind of like you're not just walking in, like, oh, I can play these songs, cool. It's kind of like, oh, yeah. You have to also convince, like, one of the best to ever touch the instrument that you can do it too. Cool, right? So, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that's how I got into the band. I had to go to an audition, met everybody at the audition. I think it was, like, two or three days. Went and had lunch. We clicked it. You know, we're family now. Have been for 20 years. So, I mean, it clicked pretty quickly.
0: That's awesome. What a great boss, too, to say, you're crazy. Call them back and say you can do it, as opposed to, like... Yeah, you made the right decision. Don't worry about it. Yeah. You were friends with Andy. Were you familiar with the first record? Were you a fan of the band?
1: Yeah, I knew Andy just from Nerve Agents, going to Nerve Agents shows. Distillers opened for Nerve Agents a few times. Actually, I think the first time that I saw the Distillers was at a club in Sacramento with Tiger Army, Nerve Agents, and AFI. Wow. If I remember right, that lineup might not be 100%. But um, I remember talking to Andy out in front of the club, and I remember that was first. That was the first time I saw the Distillers, and I remember just like, whoa, like this band's fucking rad. It just hit you instantly. Watching, I'm like, whoa, this is some badass shit, you know?
0: Did Andy play in the Nerve Agents at one point, or did they just play together a lot?
1: No, Andy was in the Nerve Agents.
0: Oh was. wow, I just recently got into them. That's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, just for, I went to a lot of Nerve Agent shows. Like there was the uh, the Vets Hall in Santa Cruz, and you know a handful of clubs around the Bay Area. And so, I mean, didn't realize at the time how fortunate and lucky I was to be growing up in you know, in an area where that scene was happening and so easily accessible.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about Sing Sing Death House. I think it's one of the best albums of its time. I mean, you you mentioned Matt Freeman and, and Rancid. Obviously, you guys were Hellcat Epitaph to a lot of us fans, especially who were growing up and, you know, in our own first bands at the time. That record really felt like a kind of a spiritual sequel to Rancid 2000. You know, it had all the hardcore, the melody, kind of everything. I mean, you've got Brett Gerwitz and Donnell Cameron. I mean, was this like your first proper record that you had made?
1: Yep. Yeah, every, every other record I'd done before was um, me figuring out a 4 track or, or yeah. messing around with putting two stereos next to each other. You know, but yeah, it was the first time I'd been in pretty much any kind of a studio aside, you know, from like your buddy who's got a small setup in his garage. And yeah. this is also like late 90s. We didn't really have Pro Tools in every, you know, and in GarageBand in every bedroom yet. So, yeah. Yeah, it was my first like real studio experience of, yeah, pressing record and someone's looking at you <laughs> and, and there's a clock ticking.
0: What was it like uh, working with those dudes? Mm-hmm. I mean, the guys behind Suffer and all these classic records.
1: I don't want to sound like an asshole because it doesn't come from any, any arrogance or, or unappreciation. I just don't have that, like where I, I see someone and, and worship them for the work they've done. It's yeah. more an appreciation of like, oh, Rat, cool. This guy's made some cool records, so he should know what he's doing, and we'll get along in that business relationship. Or you know, it's a creative environment. It's weird to think of it like a business, but ultimately, everything ends up being one. Yeah. Um, but to get along creatively, like, when I met Slash the first time, that was a bit of, like, a, whoa. Because the first thing I ever taught myself how to play on guitar was the solo to, Sweet, or the intro to Sweet Child of Mine. Yeah. And when I met him, I, I had to bust his balls and make sure I was playing it right. And it had a really cool moment where I was just hanging out with another musician and talking music. Yeah. And so I never have, like, a, oh, my God, it's the dude that made the holy shit. You know, it's just, like, kind of like, oh, rad, right, that's the guy that made that. Cool. Hopefully we can get along in that same creative environment and push each other, you know, to make something cool. Unfortunately, the actual recording process was a bit of a nightmare. The engineer, uh, was smoking crack in the bathroom. Oh my uh, we God. spent five days getting bass sounds. And for me being in studio for the first time ever and first time playing bass in, uh, I had a bass in high school for two weeks before it got stolen. And I think I played maybe 10 songs on it and that was it. So, writing and playing bass and being in that environment five days of getting bass sounds and my brain's done i don't know what's going on like
2: <laughs> you know yeah. you can
1: tell me the sky's red and i'm sure whatever you know it's just talk. i don't know what's going on anymore and kind of felt like along for the ride and just trying to do the best that i could to play the notes that i that we had worked on you know yeah. that the, all my prep going in is okay i gotta go in and play this and everything else was kind of just like a whoa what's going on this is wild
0: had you guys done any kind of demos and, and pre-production to kind of put it together, or was it mostly just banging it out in the rehearsal space?
1: There's a pre-production. CDs being sent back and forth. Uh, we'd get together. Andy and I were living up in Northern California at that time. I think I want to say it was like every weekend or every other weekend, we would drive to L.A., or uh, Tony Brody and Rose would drive up to the, uh, up to Oakland. The way we work together musically, we click really, you know, it's almost like we can read each other's minds kind yeah. of vibe. Like if Andy's playing a, a you know, he can be playing something and I'll, I'll start playing along kind of knowing he's going to go into a fill or based upon how he starts a role, I know if it's going to be a shorter fill or a longer fill. And it kind of, we just lock in like that to so where we get into the studio and it's time to play. I think we spend more time, like we'll play one song 20 times Yeah. rather than sit there and nitpick and is this part right? Is that part right? It's just like... I think of it as a whole unit not as a bunch of individual parts like you know the whole unit crossed the finish line now let's review the tape and see how to perform okay i think we can do it faster i think we can get to that finish line better play it again
0: now was that record recorded live because it has a very live feel to it
1: everything i've done with the band has been recorded live wow Um, in a sense where all of us are in a a room together uh recording i think our focus is capturing the drums yeah. from a live point so we'll, we'll mic up everything we get everything get our sounds with the idea that yeah if this sounds great let's go and then we'll play and then once we're happy with the drum part then if there's anything else like if i go man you know there's that one part i just i hear my mistake and i'm not gonna live with that so let me let me punch in over that let me try that again but for the most part we're all playing along together
0: yeah that's cool i think it definitely helps the the feel especially in this kind of music the energy being such uh, a crucial component. I mean, everyone playing in the room together, just th- there's no substitute for that. I mean, and you could do overdubs and fix little things and whatever, but I really think that in this style, that's the key element, you know?
1: For sure, man. And from a creator or an artist standpoint, I've worked with bands where there's a lot of overdubs. I've worked with studios, not with bands, but like hired gun stuff, gone into studios just as a writer where you're there with one other person there's been 15 other people in that room, and you're one in a line of who knows how long. And, you know, the producer's just calling in whoever, and they're working on one song or one album. And listening to the stuff back in the beginning, and then after I've worked on it, and then after it's been finished, is with all those little stops along the way, you lose that energy. I think it's the same yeah. way in any art medium. Some paintings you look at, and, and, you know, they'll grab you, and oh my God, you, you just feel that painting, and other ones you gloss over. I think it's because whatever the artist was expressing at the time of creation either comes through or not. And when you have that live energy, it's just like stamping that moment. You can't change it after that. There it is. And that resonates.
0: It's something about the urgency of it. Like people will say, oh, yeah, our biggest song, I wrote that in five minutes. You know, like it. it took no effort. It was just formed in my head already. And then mm-hmm. it's like, but the one I really like, that I really worked on, you know, is the one that maybe didn't resonate in the same way. Because there was something about the immediacy of, here it is, you know.
1: Yeah, I think presenting that finalized product in a way with great energy is the magic. Yeah. Um, I know that Brody has had some songs that she wrote when she was younger, you know, in her teens. Like on her new album, I, there's a song that I think she wrote as a teenager. Not necessarily that, you know, that has to happen in this moment of, oh, I got this idea, let's roll with it. But it's perfecting that craft and having something like, yes, this is what I want to present. Yeah. And then now let's go in there and knock it out. Boom, you know. But, I mean, we do practice quite a bit when we need to.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, around this time was the first time that I was introduced to you guys. I think I had heard maybe a song from the first record or something, but I was... Uh, actually recovering from a surgery at the Wow Hall here in Eugene. It was one of the rare times they had seating in the back of the room. And and I couldn't be in the pit because I had like an incision and I wasn't even supposed to leave leave the bed, but I went. And it was you guys with HIMSA and AFI. And it was one of the best shows I've ever seen. And I remember it's, again, the only time I've ever been stuck to a seat in that venue. And I'm in the very back of the room right next to the door of the green room. And the door opens and I see this massive mohawk and I'm like, I don't know, I'm in high school. I got my own mohawk and I'm like, whoa, who's that? And then I see this like beautiful girl walking by. She goes straight to the left side, walks up on the stage, grabs a guitar and is like, we're the fucking distillers. I'm like, oh, that's unexpected. And you guys just opened so hard and killed it. Like, it was just such a memorable first impression of the band.
1: That's a perfect way to describe, like, my initial reaction of seeing them as well. Um, (laughs) They were already on stage. Yeah. They were already playing, and it was, but it was that immediate, like, whoa, whoa, what? It's just, it was just a strong presence. And, um, yeah. (laughs) The funny thing about that is, I've heard from a few times we've heard that, like, back then we just came on stage and just played, and there was such a strong, maybe, aggressiveness, and that, yeah. we were told that there was people and other bands and, and some in the industry that were scared of us because of this no nonsense presence. And it's funny to me because I'm only that serious, aggressive side of me if I if I need to be. I, you know, it comes from insecurity. I don't want to talk to people through a microphone. I don't know what to say to a
2: <laughs> crowd. Of, you know yeah. what I mean?
1: Like, uh, uh, I, I'm here to play bass. You know, I'll sing the words, but, yeah, you want me to talk? That's a good way for a lot of people to hate me real quick
0: because
1: <laughs> I'll run in circles until you're like, wait, what just happened? Oh, why am I tired? Why am I – I want to go to bed. This guy talks too much.
0: <laughs> yeah, I learned that lesson. Uh, my band took a few years off, and when we were getting our, our new shit together and, and getting our set list together, I was like, you know, I'm going to watch some old footage from, like, 2007, 2006 when we were playing before – and I, I would start watching those videos, and I'm like, oh, my God, we play a minute-and-a-half song, and then we talk for three minutes. Like, <laughs> this is like pulling teeth. And so I came up with this new method where we would play four or five songs without stopping. Like, no clicks, no nothing, we just made these medleys. And then it ended up like, oh, well, let's just make the records that way. That's cool, you know? Like, let's just play mm-hmm. nonstop. And then people are like, holy shit, what just happened? Kind of like you said. Like, there's no pretenses, nothing, it's just like songs in your face, and then you let them breathe for a second. Like, wow, what was that?
1: Yeah, I like that. I think of it as a friend of mine's a, a great visual artist, and I went to see her speak with some other artists. And it was really interesting to see some of the insight of the creations that they had made. And once they opened it up to Q&A, it went from like, uh, oh, a cool evening about art to what the fuck is going on? And I've <laughs> lost interest in this, and it has soured this experience because some of the questions and the people would go in directions that had nothing to do with the artwork. Yeah. To where if I just, if I wanted to, you know, it was kind of cool as a fan after the fact of knowing her art to hear a little bit about why. But the experience with all the talking and the extra ruined it for me, you know? Yeah. And if that was my first experience with them, like, I honestly, I don't remember the other artists of that night because the horribleness of it all (laughs) ruined the aspect of, of, of art for the evening. So, like, as a musical standpoint, yeah. Get that art out there and let them digest it. And then, God, everybody's ears are going to need a break after a few minutes, right? So that's yeah. a point maybe to address. I'm not, I don't know. Again, I'm not the guy because I'm not going to talk to the audience. I try every once in a while, and every time I'm like, why why'd you do that? Shut <laughs> up, <dude>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Now, I saw you guys the same year, really not too long after that, on tour with Garbage and No Doubt, and you were playing an arena in Portland, I believe the Rose Garden or Memorial Coliseum or something. My wife and I, we've been together since back then, and, and we were just in love with you guys. We were so happy. We were also big fans of No Doubt, but to see you guys already blowing up like that, I mean, was that a kind of a taste of what was to come? I mean, you guys were still...
1: It was, it was pretty wild. Tony Kanal, their bass player, he saw us at the, I think it was at the Roxy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and invited us to come on tour with No Doubt. I believe at that point city of angels was playing on k-rock they had a i think it was called the five at nine where you could call in and vote on your favorite song and we lucked out man i don't know who put us on the radio exactly how we got there yeah Um, but that resonated with people and we got the number one slot most requested for a few i don't know how many weeks but being on k-rock at that time definitely helped us out immensely and then you know we're a live band yeah you've seen us and man, thanks for your kind words, but I, I I feel the same way. I feel very lucky and fortunate to be able to do this and to do this with these people. And at the same time, it's just a weird sense of this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. So like those... Yeah. Like, I definitely, you know, I definitely have those, That mo- I remember the first time I heard The Distillers on the radio or I heard Sing Sing Death House on the radio and it, there's that, oh my God, we're on the fucking radio. Yes.
0: A record like that too because, I mean, I just compared it to Rancid 2000. Those songs weren't on the radio. You know?
1: I Oh, wait, 2000. No, they weren't. You're yeah, right. Yeah. Not until, uh...
0: Out Come the Wolves and shit, that was, but I'm saying, like, that was a very aggressive album that still had enough crossover quality to it that it was a rare, special thing, and I think people were seeing that.
1: Man, it's hard to talk about it without... I don't want to sound egotistical or, you know, like an asshole. I appreciate everything i got gotten. Man, like I said, lucky as all can be to get to do this with the people I love, but Growing up, you listen to music, you take so much for it, helps you through the hard times, some yeah. of the lowest parts of my life. And then to be doing that now, like my whole life has been listening and creating music. And to be a part of a team that creates, you know, or be able to back Brody and the music that she creates and have people resonate with it. And to give back a little bit of that is like a really awesome feeling. And that, like, fuck, we're on the radio. That's cool. It's like, it also hits me, it's like, that's because there's a lot of people out there that are taken to heart. What you're a part of, the way that you took it to heart with the yeah. bands you grew up with, and it's just like this like circle of life feeling. Right? Like, yeah. put it, which I mean, yeah, it's it's awesome and holy shit. Like, I feel like I won the lottery, and at the same time, it's just kind of humbling. You know, you were given it, and now you're giving it back, and you're going to take it again because new bands and some of my favorite bands are still releasing music, and every time an album comes out, I get to take a little bit of that back. Yeah, it's a cool feeling, man.
0: It's interesting too in thinking about. That cyclical nature of music, because like I just had Brenna from the Last Gang dropping their second record, and it's one of those things where like now any time a female-fronted punk band drops, every reviewer compares to Distillers. I mean, you guys became the benchmark at that point.
1: I mean, it's unfortunate that that gets put on us that we're the benchmark because we got. I mean, for us it was Courtney Love. Yeah. And I'm sure for Courtney Love it was, you know
0: Joan Jett. Or,
1: G- Joan Jett Yeah, or I was gonna say Pat Benatar or the Go Go's. And I'm sure they, you know, got Chrissy Hind. And, you know, it's it's uh more a product of bad journalism or lazy journalism I should say. Yeah. There are artists that I can hear the influence that Brody's had on them yeah. and their music, and there's others that I, I think that I'm you know, I'm surprised when they drop the Distillers as an influence. Like, Oh wow. You know, there's some pop artists that were inspired by Brody growing up. And it's like, oh, wow, that's awesome. They took that punk and influenced them into create their art. It's obviously their own.
0: Yeah, I I get what you're saying. I think for me, it's interesting, partially due to representation. And like you said, just kind of lazy, like that's the only thing I can draw from. But as a, a fan... I mean, I, I'm over-analytical. I, obviously, I love the behind-the-scenes discussion about the creative process, you know. It's interesting to me, when someone applies that label, then I have to put on the critical lens of, okay, now, is this simply because of the female singer, or is there a melodic sense here? Is there something in the lyric? Is there a guitar element? Like, what is the thing that they're hearing? And so, I kind of don't know when it's legitimate or not but it's used a lot
1: yeah it bums me out mostly because in any time i read uh you know a new band comes out or someone recommends it it's like oh yeah they sound like this like there's a band that i just got kind of turned on to and i'm like this band is ripping and i love them and i wanted to share them it's a band called king woman and i wanted to share them and i just took a picture of the uh, record and put it on my uh social of just, dude, you know, check this out. And I, there's a part of me that's like, oh, like, if you check them out if you like Royal Blood or Castle. Yeah. But I'm doing the same thing. I'm just being lazy because those <laughs> are, like, they don't sound anything alike. Yeah. You could say they're both metal bands, but think about how big of a genre, you know, that doesn't really limit it down much.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and it's the same thing. So I just, man, I just kind of like to let things sit on their own merit and let people make their own associations because yeah. you, I fall victim a lot to people assuming that I'm on their side with their opinions and they'll talk about something and be like, oh, yeah, you know, like, fuck that shit, blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> I, I love that shit. Why would you fuck, man? Okay, you know? So it's, yeah. I hate labels and associations. I like everything to stand on its own individually and be appreciated for that, but yeah. I think that's a little too optimistic of me.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of labels in a more literal sense, when you guys did depart from Hellcat, And that was such a weird, public, personal thing. I don't know. It just seemed like everyone was taking sides at the time. And that must have been really odd for you guys who were just kind of brought along for the ride.
1: Yeah, man, it was fucked up. Very bizarre to have a friend go through something like that and have it completely judged by this large group of people that had no fucking clue what was really going on. Yeah. And a lot of people hated us. Marriages fall apart all the time. I'm divorced. It's like, you know, shit happens. Yeah,
0: I remember that being so strange just as a fan. I mean, like I said, we were all in in high school and throwing our own shows and stuff. And we loved Rancid 2000. We loved Sing Sing Death House. And, you know, when the dust settled from all that other shit, we loved Coral Fang and we loved Indestructible. You know, it, it didn't have to be a thing. You could still just love the the bands and the music, you know?
1: Yeah, I think the thing should have been, you know, in two people's lives and then their support groups to be there for them through that. Yeah. Unfortunately, the way it reverberated through the fan base was just like a
0: real slap in the face, it felt like. And so when Sire steps in, is that just sort of like a breath of fresh air of like, now we're kind of pulling ourselves out of this situation
1: we had started kind of i don't know the right word transitioning entertaining the idea being propositioned yeah um, but it wasn't a thing of like label came in and said hey and we we're like yep because we all came up in the punk scene which is you know whatever the music is the it's the diy scene you yeah. know what i mean of like why do they want us and it's because we've been on the rate you know and it's kind of like do we or don't we and different labels started coming out and we were courted by a few and it was weird and gross and icky. (laughs) And (laughs) and, uh, Sire Reprise, they're both, uh, you know, under the Warner umbrella. They were willing to let us be artists and work on the art. And they're the business that works on selling or distributing or whatever. Yeah. That kind of was a little underway already. And the breath of fresh air, I guess, kind of came with the realization that everybody hates us and it was, Breath of Fresh Air and we realized, well, then fuck them. We don't need them. Yeah. And we went on, we did Coral Fang, and it allowed us to kind of grow into our own. And I don't mean in a, mus- in a, a sound sense. I mean as a, as a functional unit, as a band, in the way that we work together. And uh, we went from being a band to being a family.
0: Yeah, I mean, going through something like that, I imagine, would only deepen those bonds significantly.
1: Yeah, it was the four of us against everybody yeah. you know fuck the world we're gonna do this and if you're trying to stop us you can you can get fucked too
0: yeah now I want to talk about the musical direction of Coral Fang because it's simultaneously core distillers and also a bit of a departure like on the outside it was always like your guys in utero like it had a lot more you know Nirvana elements 90s elements I actually just recently came across and old interview with you from around that time talking about how, like, oh, yeah, you're listening to a lot of Sonic Youth and Soundgarden, Nirvana, and I think that record really cemented Brody as one of the great vocalists in rock, you know, at the time, and, and really just, I mean, Gil Norton really elevated your sound. I mean, you talked about five days on bass tone on the on the last record, but I don't want to say anything negative about it, but this one sounds like, you sound live. You know, it's big, it's mean. I imagine you had so much more time and budget to get it right this time?
1: Yeah, thanks. I mean, Green Day's American Idiot set up Warner to yeah. treat us very well to make that <laughs> record. <laughs> yeah, we uh, recorded at a place called The Site, which is... Uh basically it, probably a house and at one point they said hey we're gonna build a recording studio off the back of that garage there yeah and then we'll make the house bigger too but yeah we went and lived at a house that had a really nice recording studio we were there i think for five weeks for the most part warner Brothers, they left us alone i think they i think they came out to visit once just hey guys how's it going can yeah. we hear something and we played one song for them told them to scram and they did and nice we really got to make our record. The sound of it and having that kind of grunge i guess influence of the time um i think it was more of us being true to ourselves i mean honestly i have uh uh, tomorrow i got to start working on a cover of in bloom for something else so i mean still rocking that same same vibe it's funny my my fiance, i think it was like a a few months ago had that like okay yep i'm a 90s kid just all the hip-hop i listen to i've been on a hip-hop kick lately and realizing that all the records I'm hunting down are all that early, you know, 90s era hip-hop. Yep. Yeah, so I guess just, you know, that allowed us to um, explore without the stupid labels we carry as kids, you know? We're we're a punk band, we're on a punk label, we can't do that. Yeah. It's like, hey, well, fuck it, the punks all hate us and do whatever the fuck we want, (laughs) you know? And so we made the record that we wanted to, without this outside influence, you know, any type of limitation or label or idea of what was expected, we got to just, like, make our record and man I, I can't wait for the new one to come out i feel the new record is in the same kind of extension that sing sing went to coral fang i think coral fang into the new one kind of it's not as significant as a jump i think it pairs pretty good with coral fang but it's definitely yeah. has that next kind of move if that makes sense
0: yeah that's exciting yeah
1: it is being an artist i think there's some bands that can do it and i'm not going to knock any of them i love the Offspring and. They've kind of been making the same kind of records uh, for a bit. They have their sound, you know, yeah. same with like Pennywise. And there's some other bands that can really do it great. And then there's some bands that for some reason it you feel a lack of growth. Yeah. Being with Andy, Tony and Brody and continuing to grow is it's, it's pretty rad. And I uh, mean, I want you guys to hear this. I wish it was out already.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. I mean, I was going to ask if you guys were working on something at the end, so I'm I'm glad to hear it's already uh, happening.
1: We ha- Yeah, we got one. It's just the great fuck-up of the world that we're still dealing with.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to spend a little more time on Coral Fang because that's really a significant album in, in my life. Relaxing the tempo a little bit, I mean, aside from some of the songs, but, I mean, was that freeing to you as a bass player? Because I feel like you are kind of coming into your own there
1: yeah i didn't have to um meet those expectations i didn't have to you know like there wasn't an idea of okay what do i have to do who do i have to impress yeah what what lines do i have to cross i should say you know what hurdles do i have to make sure i've knocked down and proven my worth before i move forward it was more of just like you said kind of coming into my own especially as like I i was a metal guitar player Huge yeah black metal fan. and I was living in San Francisco at the time I joined the distillers was trying to start a black metal band unsuccessfully trying It was hard at the time to find other musicians. So switching to bass was kind of for me uh, sing Sing Death House was a lot of metal riffs, a lot of like metal scales.
2: yeah
0: um,
1: just playing them on bass. And then with the slowed down tempo, um the hunger is the first time i had ever tried to play a song uh without using a pick yeah and i think that was in studio that that happened that, Of just like hey we're playing it at this tempo you know let me try it without a pick let me see that and i listen to it now and i can hear like oh I can, yeah, it's a little cringy technique wise like, oh i had no idea what i was doing why did i <laughs> but, yeah, but it fits it works and there's like gallows was kind of the first i think song for bass that i didn't have to rewrite that it's kind of like here's my idea and it stuck a lot of times like uh, for one song i'll write 10 ideas and then kind of once we all get together and start playing figure out you know what works what doesn't but um that was i think the first song where it was kind of here's my idea and it worked and it's also kind of a out of timey sort of weird what do we call it uh gil called it the knuckle dragger yeah which was you know and it was kind of that's a little bit more of me on my own as a musician without playing with anyone else, that's kind of the style that I write. Weird, intricate, like John Frusciante kind of oh, melodies with counter melodies. I'm in just, love
0: with Frusciante, man.
1: Yeah, I, I spend too much time with the delay pedal at home. Yeah. But yeah, so it was definitely fun to kind of slow down and explore other ideas. And I remember on Hall of Mirrors, which at the time was called Hurricane, mm-hmm. it had that fast, flashy, anti-flag kind of you know bass yeah. going on. And then as the song progressed, it was like, okay, well maybe I'll just kind of, I'll have a a fill here and a little run there. Okay. Maybe just here. Yeah. Okay. Maybe not at all. And then, you know, as it got simplified and then as a bass player, that allowed me to focus more on my timing with my right hand. And now I'm more technical, I think with my right hand and my picking patterns. Yes.
0: Dude, that's the key to the rhythm section, man. It really is. It's all in the right hand.
1: Oh man. Like dude, James Hetfield, his right hand is amazing. And, um, Man, all the guys in Killing Joke. God, man, the right hand of Killing Joke. Um, that whole band <laughs> is amazing. Um, but, yeah, I got way more interested in, in those kind of kind of, uh, stuff, Faith No More kind of vibes, um, yeah. where it's not so much this, like, it's more of the like a start, stop, start, stop, you know, in different patterns of that. I mean, you could go like Meshuga, the extreme version of it.
0: I had a bass player friend of mine tell me once, I'm a guitar player, but I was playing bass in a couple bands for a while, and he saw our set, and he's like, man, I like what you're doing. He's like, my rule is the bass player only gets one cool lick per song. He's like, like, and you throw in just enough of that spice, you know, to like elevate it and not just copy the guitar part but like not too much where you're overplaying he's like yeah you just you get one cool thing per song and he's like that little lick that was yours you know That's
1: <laughs> yeah I, I call that the sparkle notes yeah the sparkle notes If you're staring at the sky there's all the stars up there and then a little sparkle or, Ooh, what's that yeah but if everything's sparkling you're just staring at a disco ball nobody likes looking directly at a disco ball yes um but i was uh in school uh for recording i went to a music school and we had uh all the students uh, learning to record. And so um, everybody that could play kind of grabbed an instrument to help them through it or whatnot. And then the same thing they are playing like some real simple Ramones kind of stuff. And I look over at my friend in the, in the class and it'd be like, you want to see everybody in the recording room? Go, Ooh. He goes, yeah. <laughs> so did a little do, doo do, doo 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 And Whoa. I was like, yeah, it's sparkle notes. So if I do that every time, they'll lose interest real quick. Yeah. But then, yeah, you do it one time. And whoa, whoa, whoa hey, that one thing you did was cool, man.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, Fun. it's just ingve, and you're oversaturated with it.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: I want to ask, before we move on from this, any particular memories about working with Gil or working with Andy Wallace? I mean, I obviously, Andy is as great as it gets in the rock production world. Gil, I know for doing the two best-sounding Foo Fighters records. Um, <laughs> his, his guitar tone, his ear for guitars is just brilliant. Any particular memories from working with those dudes?
1: Gil is great. I love Gil. Both of those guys were great. Everybody that worked on that album with us in a room with us or working on that were great. In the regard that they let us be us, yeah, and let us ask questions, let us say the stupid things. Like it, it's kind of whiny. That's <laughs> that that guitar solo sounds hollow. Mm-hmm. You know, and they let us, you know, play along those lines instead of kind of we've had a few producers come in with their ideas. And you can tell right away that this isn't going to work. Yeah. And I've had some moments with producers or, you know, in studio where you're just kind of there's that tension where it gets to the point of I'm not having fun anymore. I yeah, think that's part of the process. And but with Gil and then it was just I remember being a lot of fun and a lot of, a lot of creativity going on. Not afraid to get weird. I mean, we brought drills, uh, hammers. We had all kinds of fun stuff going on. Uh, at one point, I had a bass that was... I don't remember what the open tuning was or what each string was tuned to, but they were all tuned open to different parts of the song, and that was plugged into a bass amp with a big muff pedal, and that was just on. So any time that I'd hit these certain notes, it would resonate on the open string and just cause this distortion. Um, <laughs> kind of you know ambient distortion on a few things it ended getting tucked in there that you can't really hear it yeah Um, you know i don't notice it when i listen to the album but that creation is is so much fun and then uh man working with andy wallace was just like man that was like going to and i don't mean it in a bad way but like if there was the coolest grandpa in the entire world and he was like crowned king cool guy yeah and everybody knew he was the coolest grandpa and we got to go and listen to the coolest grandpa stories is what it felt like, and I don't mean it in a bad way. He just—he was an older guy, and he had some awesome stories to tell. He was a rad guy, and he let me mix uh, death sex.
2: <laughs> oh, really?
1: Yeah. He uh, well, the what is that song? It's twelve minutes? And after the first two minutes of song or whatever, he was I don't I don't yeah. What do you want to do with this? And <laughs> I had some ideas for a few things. He's like, okay, here's what the knobs do. I'm just gonna sit here and you know I'd have how do I make it do this? And he would show me and be like, yeah, how do I make that sound over here? I wanted to go from that speaker over to this speaker, and he actually kind of, okay, we'll do this, and at the time, it was, you know, just it was fun, like, oh, yeah, I'll do that, oh, cool, this is fun, and then afterwards, like, holy shit, I kind of just got a mixing lesson from Andy Wallace. Whoa!
0: That's amazing, man, like, if he'd said that in the session, I, I would have been like, dude, you mixed Endless Nameless on Nevermind, what are you talking about? You know how to do this this noisy shit, too, but... <laughs>
1: there was i think a 24 minute version of that song recorded <laughs> oh, and um and, and yeah i think that if ever there was like hey we should uh you know if warner ever decided to release that or somehow and wanted in my capacity of a hands-on mixing i'd be like you know and i did that once yeah you know? so it's like i'm understand good. the listening to 12 minutes of feedback and trying to get it to harmonize with that other feedback over there is yeah <laughs> call that a one and done life experience
0: i had uh jason livermore on from the blasting room uh, oh, okay. a while back and he talked about everything sucks from descendants and that you know they flew out there to work with him and he's like he just let me be like a little kid i was all up in his space watching asking questions about everything he did he's like and he was just the most gracious guy he he, he was happy to share his tricks and and he's like i learned so much of that as a young engineer just from that one session so that's cool that you had a similar experience where he actually let you put your hands on the mix you know
1: there, yeah well there was a f- I, I specifically remember there was like you can touch there was two knobs that were right below the screen and it was like you can touch those ones you know when i'd ask him a question but most, yeah it was how do i do this and he'd oh, here, let me do that yeah <laughs> but uh he had a rad mastering console not a ma- i'm sorry not a mastering console mixing console It wasn't as uh elaborate as the recording console. Yeah. A little more. I remember that. It it reminded me of some like World War II communication equipment. I was with, at that time it was all very new to me, those those kinds of things. Yeah. But yeah, that was a really cool experience.
0: One thing I learned while doing the research for this, I had no idea that in those middle years where Distillers was off, that you played in Angels and Airwaves with Tom DeLonge. I'll be honest with you. When Tom made that big mission statement, thing that got all that attention that's like we're gonna revolutionize rock and roll we're gonna be the greatest shit since Queen or whatever. I was like, I'm sorry, Tom. I'm good. And I I didn't hear it until this weekend. <laughs> 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 I, I I never heard it until this weekend when I was getting ready for this interview. So totally 180. I mean it, it definitely feels like like Tom. It's not too crazy of a departure, but sonically and tempo wise and production wise i mean that's a whole different animal i guess if we could just touch on what was your your relationship with tom how did that happen and how was shifting gears yet again
1: well unfortunately there's an nda on oh. that band okay. my involvement at the time because of the time period of uh, my departure from the band yeah i think that nda was uh, you know protection for them, and not that I needed it, but it's, you know, an insurance, I should say. An insurance sure. of protection that I'm not going to, hey, fuck these guys. And I can understand that now. I kind of, there's a part of me that's like, man, eh, you know, I, I wish I could tell some stories. Yeah. You know, I, I got nothing bad against any of those people. I mean, everything but music, we got along great. And yeah. I wish I had spent more time in that aspect. I think it was just in the same regards that actors are, and actors, directors may not get it along on set is the way that you approach creating your art. Yeah, and I, I think we—the uh, way that I approach creating music and the way that Tom does—are just uh, uh, from two different books. Mm-hmm. But everything outside of that, lo- a lot of similarities and a lot of common interests. You know, David's got his coffee company now; he makes good coffee. I run into him. He lives—we live in the same city. We cross paths every once in a while. Nice. Yeah, no ill will. Musically, it was a departure. It was exciting for me to try something new. You know, get out of your comfort zone. So I, I enjoy doing that to a degree.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure. I don't want to push too much into that. I also came across a couple tracks from a band called The Innocent, which is you playing with Brooks Wackerman, Brandon from Bleeding Through, Dave from No Use. I mean, what a lineup, and I can barely find any of it. Was that really short-lived?
1: Very short-lived. I think Dave and Brandon had gotten together because they were good friends. They wanted to have a band together. Yeah. David called me and talked to me about it, and yeah, sure, and sent me some stuff. And I, I don't know how Brooks was involved. We got together once for a Christmas dinner, (laughs) the entire band. And that was the only time that we were all together in the same room. (laughs) Um, It was all created. uh, I recorded my parts here at home. Wow. um, And then we had a studio. So, yeah, so I demoed everything at home. And, yeah, there was a studio in Orange County I went up to and recorded bass and and keyboards. What ended up happening was uh, Dave joined Bleeding Through, and so then Brandon and Dave had their metal band that they were in together, so it was kind of this would have just been a vanity project.
0: Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, I I heard it and going, oh, wow, that's a departure. But then in speaking with you today, it's like, oh, no, I started out playing metal. So that's got to be fun, familiar territory. Like, all right, I just went from my slowest, grooviest, spaciest project to now let's play the hardest, fastest shit ever, you know?
1: Yeah, it was fun. I remember there was one song and I just, oh, sweet. I I get to
0: buy a wah-wah pedal for this one. Yeah. Do my Cliff Burton
1: that I have justification. Yeah, no, that was fun. Brooks had left uh, before the band split. I thought it was to do another Tenacious D record at yeah. the time, and I was kind of like, oh, I was looking forward to that. I was excited, kind of like, hey, let me know if they, you know, use my name if they need some bass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, my friend Adrian, drummer from At The Gates, uh, he played with Cradle of Phil for a while. I reached out to him, and he had, we have one song that I don't think, I don't think Brandon ever added, I think he wrote lyrics, but I didn't actually put them down with Adrian on drums. And that even sent it to another level of metal that had the real like like Swedish death metal kind of vibe happening to it. And I got real excited. And then, yeah, and then Dave joined Bleeding Through and it all went bye-bye. But it was a fun time of getting to create, you know, a new, not new style of music, but yeah, coming from a real spacey subdued, focusing on harmony and kind of, yeah, And then going into, yeah, playing 220 BPM and, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's my shit. Now, forgive me, because I'm not as versed in metal. I recently got into The Haunted. I know that they are members of... It's not At The Gates, is it?
1: Yes, that is the same drummer.
0: Oh, it is the same drummer. Uh, yeah. Okay, man, yeah, that's I just a, got their, their self-titled record and I am in love with it. So, yeah, I totally know the style you're talking about, yeah. Okay,
1: yeah, yeah, Haunted's ripping. I, I kind of think of The Haunted as, like, if like Swedish death metal and like New York hardcore had a baby, yeah, it's some, somewhere in there. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That's a ripping album.
0: My issue with metal is usually the vocals. They don't. Have, they tend to have more like throaty techniques and less like heart and passion like hardcore has. And so when I heard that, I was like, oh my god, this this has all the heart with all the greatness of the thrash, you know, riffage and stuff.
1: Yeah. I don't really listen to too much metal anymore for that reason. There's a lot of, I think, what happens with any type of music, and I think you can hear it the most nowadays in hip hop, is if you listen to, I cannot remember who to credit it to, but there's a saying that's like back in the day, you would hear rappers and you'd be like, oh man, you know, you, there's no way you thought you could do it. You listen to rappers now and you're like, I could do that. And you're <laughs> probably
0: right. Yeah.
1: I'm um, not saying that I can rap by any means. I'm just, you know, just that saying. But I, I hear that in music where, the reason that it was created, that those artists created it, and the reasoning behind it, it had a meaning and a purpose. And then yeah. once, years after that's gone by, then it's just known for its sound, its distance from from the meaning. So like the second wave of people that hear it, whatever reason that the first generation listened to it resonated it, the second generation is going to resonate for a different reason and so on to the point where it just becomes, oh, that's a sound, that's what you're supposed to sound like. So the yeah. singers, yeah, it's like you're going to be in a metal band, you got to have a singer with rough vocals. You know, and a lot of my favorite metal bands now are bands that kind of bridge that, you know, like Borknagar has that ability. I don't know if you've ever heard of that band. They have an ability Mm -hmm. to have that, you know, real harsh vocals and then the melodic kind of singing on top of it.
0: Yeah.
1: Sarah Jezebel Diva, who she sang for, she did all the female vocals with Cradle of Filth for a bit. She's done a few metal bands, but she has a very operatic voice and to me that juxtaposition of the really beautiful voice with this really threatening and you know aggressive music to me that's more interesting than just this constant barrage of noise now granted there was a time in my life where you brought that melody and get the fuck out of here i want that violence i want you know (laughs) that cannibal corpse nothing but crazy you know yeah i had my time but just yeah i'm in my 40s now i gotta have i gotta have something that reminds me there's beauty still out there
0: (laughs) yeah let me circle back to the Stillers here. I saw Brody's solo band in 2014 up in Portland. And oh, I was, first of all, surprised to see Tony on stage. And to be frank, I i mean, obviously I loved the Stillers. I didn't quite get the spinneret and solo direction. It was just different influences than I'm familiar with, really. But I wanted to see her. It had been so many years So we went there. I'm like, oh, wait, this is half the distillers. And then they start playing all these deep cuts, the fastest shit. I'm talking like Bullet in the Bullseye. And it was the greatest (laughs) surprise at a show. It was amazing. We were all blown away. We were so happy. I was just fucking singing at the top of my lungs. And then fast forward a couple years, I actually ran into Tony at Amoeba. And I got to see you guys when you did the reunion tour. It was like, holy shit, it was The polar opposite of that other set that I saw, this was all the groovier stuff, the coral fang stuff, the really dynamic, you know, set list with I think maybe you did an encore with some of the faster shit. Because it surprised me a little bit and going like, oh, wow, well, if if she was doing that on her solo shit, I imagine they're going to come out more pissed than ever. And it was like, no, we're going to pick up right where we left off.
1: Well, make no mistake about it. I am more angry than I've ever been in my entire life. <laughs> it's a refined and distinguished anger that knows when to lay back. No, um, yes. The reunion was, ah, fuck, man. It was something, and it had been in my mind, I want to say, like, as a constant, um, for about six years. And uh, Brody and I talked about it, and the best way that, like, all those years in between, there was a sense that we just weren't done. Mm hmm. It wasn't a need for, you know, a sense of closure or anything like that. There was just this, like, no, we're not done. I don't I don't know how to describe it. But in my head, it started like, okay, how are we going to do this if it's not done? Where we, you know, like, by the time, I remember we went to our uh, favorite little Mexican restaurant in Burbank that we used to have all of our business meetings at back in the early 2000s. Yeah. And so walking back in there, I, w- I was recovering from a, a broken leg. So I had a cane and all, you know hobbling around <laughs> and uh walking in there I was the last one to arrive and i just remember when we all sat down it was like i think i said like i need a minute because this is overwhelming yeah and i think we all i think there was a minute or, or, or three or five of us just kind of like sitting there and letting that like giddiness go away so we're not like hey, look at it, he... there was like a feeling it was just emotionally like wow and then that first show for me back was bittersweet in the sense that The only bittersweetness is that um, I'm not a huge fan of the city that I live in, and that's where the first show was back. Oh. God, I don't know how to describe it. It was awesome being back in a smaller club. Yeah. You know, like kind of the same size as the places where we started. God, it was getting to relive the beginning. From when I joined the band to Coral Fang, it was reliving that within two and a half weeks. Yeah. Playing the smaller clubs and then playing some larger ones. It was cool. The club we played, I've been there, you know, hundreds of times to see other bands. Um, actually, I saw Brody's band there. Would you say it was 2014?
0: Yeah. Yeah. When I saw him solo, I had to look it up to see when the, the show was.
1: Yeah, I saw that same tour. Oh, man. There's some funny moments from that. That's when I, I first met Eden, who uh, was our guitar tech, Brody's guitar tech oh. uh, for us now. That was the first time I met him, and, oh, man, I thought he was some real no-joke ass-kicker, man. (laughs) There's no, like, backstage. All the gear is kind of next to the stage, and there's duct tape on the ground, and it's like, yeah, don't cross the line. Yeah. But sometimes it's like you kind of got to lean over to see the stage or whatever, and every time I set... This dude would tap me on the shoulder and just give me this stern look of like, Burr. yeah. And that, and then uh, yeah. When they, I, I do remember them playing, I think it was Sing Sing and Bullet. It was it was an older song, and yeah. I, I told my parents i say, "I'll be right back, baby. I'm going in the pit." Yeah. And I, I, met him, and I'm in the pit, and I just remember there's like you know I'm 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 having fun in the pit, and this kid in front of me just turns around and gives me this look that just like it hit me straight into my heart of like old man get your ass the fuck out of here. You know, it's like, You're like fuck you. That's bummed. my like, song. Yeah, Why is this guy running in a circle and bumping into everyone? We're just trying to pogo dance. It was like, uh, yeah, it was like, it was this kind of moment of just like, but it's, I, I, I played on that song. You yeah. Know? <laughs> oh man. But, um, yeah, coming back there with the distillers, it was awesome. It was fun being in a small, sweaty club for me, just in a really shitty personal way. I wish that it wasn't in the city where I live, where, a big portion of my social life was because I'm on a stage then looking at, you know, a lot of people that I've spent the last 10 years of my life kind of seeing around town and this and that or anything. And it kind of took away from the specialness, I think, of the whole moment for me, because it was kind of like the looking out in the crowd. It was, like, it was like, yo yeah, this is the life that I'm trying to get away from.
0: <laughs> you felt like a, a local band for a night?
1: Oh, man, I don't know how to describe it. it. It was not so much that. I played in some local bands, San Diego. You know, I've always been playing music around here and playing these. It, it was just kind of... I don't know how to describe it in just this way of like, this is everything that I did before I came here. Yeah. And I came to where I live and the band ended. And then I had this life here and now it's like, oh man, I don't know how to describe it. It's like the two merging together and my brain freaking out about it. Yeah. And one aspect, like when I play live, I'd say 90% of the time my eyes are closed. That's my moment where I let go of everything. Where I can actually just everything in the entire world can fuck off. I this I don't care. I'm singular track right now, and this is it. Don't fuck with me. Yeah. And then opening my eyes and seeing my neighbor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: you know, it's just kind of this weird like juxtaposition of like you know what I've been doing every day for at least ten years. You yeah. know, it's kind of like being a musician. You know, how you can fuck yourself up. Think shit. Did I do? Laundry? Do I have enough laundry? Oh fuck! I fucked up. You know. And then it's just, like, all of a sudden you open your eyes and your boss from last weekend is staring at you. And you're like, yeah. what the fuck? You know, it was kind of, that's, that's, uh... It was a little bit jarring in that regard. And, like, seeing some people that I know getting crushed, helping a friend of mine out of the pit who's now sitting on stage, and it was just kind of this weird, like... I don't know, it was fun, and it reminded me of how the, how the shit used to be back in, before I was in a band, you know? When you are yeah. pulling your friends up from the pit and kind of thing like that. But at the same time, it was just this, like, weird jarring moment in my brain that kept like the next show for me to get out of town and do that then it felt like tour then it felt like we were back we played up in uh, orange county and it was like that was the moment for me of just like fuck yeah here we go we're back
0: yeah i get what you're saying there i put out a book about touring recently and there was a particular tour where our first three shows were either in the vicinity of my hometown or my tourmate's hometown, and so I was like, the first three shows we're all sleeping in our own beds, and this is fucking weird. And so it's like the fourth show when we crossed into Washington's, like, all right, now the tour has started. Mm-hmm. We're half a week in, but now it's started. Yeah.
1: Yeah, if the show here had been like, you know, like the second or, you know, fourth show, you know, get a weekend or something, then it it might have felt like a triumphant homecoming, you know, (laughs) something like that. But it was just, you know, having a landing gear take off from here was just a little, I mean, it's my own brain, you know, (laughs) just my own little like jarring of, you know, trying to listen to a song and someone keeps, you know, you take your headphones out. I'm trying to enjoy the music here and you're pulling me out of it.
0: Well, I was, full disclosure, bittersweet. I was excited when you guys dropped the Live in Lockdown announcement. I'm like, oh, shit, this is, we're getting a proper release of this. But, like, me being of the age where all the music I've ever bought was on CD, then I was immediately disappointed. Oh, I can't buy this. Okay, never mind. But it's a cool project. I was able to at least check it out on you know online, but... Um, I kind of thought that that was it, you know? It was like, cool, they're dropping some live shit. I hadn't actually heard that you guys were back in the studio. So tell me what we can expect going forward. How long have you guys been writing again?
1: Well, I know that there's one song on the album that I think Brody, uh, like I said, I want to say she's 14, 15. Wow. Something she wrote, yeah, back then. I don't know what to expect for the future, man. Like, (laughs) I mean, we're still... I'm still looking forward to the same tours that I've been looking forward to going on, you know, that that were in my head winter of you know 2019. Yeah. We came home from tour with uh, Alexis on Fire. I came home in January and I was looking forward to going on tour in June, uh, a specific tour in June. Yeah. I am still looking forward to going on that tour (laughs) next June. I was looking forward to going to this June and I'm still looking forward to going on that tour next June. But yeah, when we got back together, we didn't think of it as like, oh, we're going to go on a reunion tour. I mean, for yeah. us, it was literally picking up where we left off. I want to say within, you know, like hanging out, like within a few hours, if not like the second day of us being back together, it felt it felt like in a weird sense. Yeah, it had been 14 years or, or something like that. But also it felt like it had been maybe a week or two. Yeah. Like we had we had gone home from tour and now we're getting back and ready for the next tour is kind of how it felt like. So it wasn't really a sense of, yeah, let's, let's do the reunion tour and we'll go out and have some fun. It was kind of picking up where we left off and being like, okay, well, do we go into the studio or go on tour? And it was, you know, real live band. Let's go live.
0: Maybe I'm forgetting. You guys did drop a single uh, in 2018, didn't you?
1: Yeah, we dropped uh, Man vs. Magnet and Blood and Gutters.
0: Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah.
1: That was fun. That was fuck, Man, that was punk as a motherfucker. Yeah, we recorded that. I, th- I want to say from recording it to releasing it was a week or two. Wow.
0: It went quick. Are either of those going to be on the next record? No. Cool. All fresh stuff?
1: No. Oh, yeah. I think those songs were kind of like. Well, Blood and Gutters is a cover of one of Brody's songs. That was the oh, first okay. album. And then Madden vs. Magnet. I guess you could say that song might be the bridge from Coral thing to the next record. Okay. Sonically a little bit, maybe it's the first step onto the bridge, <laughs> but yeah, we picked up where we left off, went on tour. Then yeah, we started writing, man, like I, my time frame is so messed up from this quarantine. Yeah. There was some interesting, like I had been in sort of a quarantine until the distillers got back together. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some surgeries and a, a really bad broken leg and, I was actually bedridden for almost five weeks, so wow. going on tour was kind of like cool, back to the world, but in a different way that I hadn't done in many, many years. Yeah, yeah, and then it was a nice little break, and now we're back at home. Yep. <laughs> and so yeah, so my time frame's off, but um, yeah, we had some like sessions we'd get together in LA and do some writing. I'd go up meeting up with Brody. Now we got GarageBand, so it's uh, you know it allows us to kind of work a little bit more independently and remotely. You know, we satellite our ideas and then get together and flesh them out. But um, we've had a record ready to go for maybe almost a year.
0: Wow, that's great.
1: Yeah, like I said, I don't know the the exact dates, but yeah, it's been a little minute.
0: (laughs) I'm sure that uh, you can't drop any names or anything, but I mean, have you guys, I assume then, found a producer that you like, found a new label that you're uh, working with?
1: yeah, it's been so long that I I don't know what has been talked about already.
0: <laughs> I, I feel like not much, honestly. I don't I don't want to push you too far on that.
1: Yeah, oh no, that's okay. There, there's nothing that I'm worried about giving away of like, oh no, I spilled the beans. But it's kind of like I think of it as like Marvel. It's like I could tell you something, <laughs> yeah. And you'd be like, oh, that sounds cool. But it's it, nothing I say is going to be as good as listening to it. Yeah. I can tell you all about the next, you know, I can't. I wish I could. I can tell you all about the next <laughs> Thor movie. But no matter what I tell you, sitting there and watching it, that experience is going to, you know, I'd rather just leave it for that. But, yeah, we got a label producer that has made some of my favorite albums. Awesome. Hopefully, you know, we'll see what, uh, I think we're all on Delta at the moment. Yeah. Let's <laughs> we'll see when that lands or departs, whatever. But, yeah, let's, I'm hoping for uh, early next year. Cool. That's my, my personal finger crossed moment is, the, is by then. We'll have some new music out.
0: Awesome, man. Well, I I, and everyone else will be looking forward to it.
1: It's a record for me that uh, I listen to a lot. And I know a lot of art- artists, you know, they say that, you know, they make the record they want to listen to. And yeah. this definitely is, for me, one of them that, like, wasn't going into it with that idea, just going in, right, you know, wanting to make the, do my job in yeah. the best capacity that I can. But with it finished and having it in my hands and listening to it a bit, I can't stop listening to it. I think it's a really great record. And, and I'm usually really critical. Like I have a band that I did in San Diego that has music out. And I realized that I've done a few of these podcasts and never mentioned it and because every time I listen <laughs> to it, I'm like, no, that w- that was fun to do. That was a live thing. But no, I don't want people to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. But this one is, it's enjoyable for me. I really, as, as, uh, as one that I'm able to distance myself from, as you know, it's hard when you're listening. I would imagine as actors watching themselves on screen, but this is an album that I've been able to somewhat distance my participation in it and, appreciate it as a as a listener
0: that's awesome man that's a pretty good sign when uh something that you've had to listen to a million takes of and a million mixes of that after a little bit of time you still have it in rotation i mean that's the best sign for me anyway
1: well that is i guess uh very selfish benefit of the lockdown is that i've had those moments i went back to school and got a degree in recording and awesome i've worked with some bands and recorded some albums and i'm the, the kind of guy that will what was that rewind it what was that rewind you know and i take an album home i listen to a song a thousand times you know and note everything i got notebooks and notebooks you know of like all stupid little things and i've heard every one of these songs a hundred thousand times maybe. And there's definitely that time where, okay, we're done. Ah, that's done. And, you know, I think we, we've, we've toured a bit since then, uh, a little bit and then, you know, get back home and it's like, Oh yeah, I've listened to that in a bit. And I think one of like the selfish benefits of that is the release being pushed back a few times or not figured out or whatever. And, uh, me being able to spend a few weeks in between listening. So,
2: yeah,
1: actually it was several months, I should say sev- several months between listening and, and then, uh, then being able to listen to it as a listener.
0: Good. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time. <laughs> Last thing I wanted to mention, I, I think my former bandmates would be uh, maybe disappointed if I didn't. In those middle years, about 10 years ago, when I was playing bass in bands, one of them, my close friends from Seattle, they were called Jory and the Push. The record is called The Heart is Wise then they started their own uh, HeartWise records. So that's that's the influence no, no, that's, that you guys have had on us. So thank you for oh,
1: awesome. the music, man. Dude, no, it's, I love those kinds of things. There's a really cool coffee shop here called HeartWork. Oh, really? And that's taken from a, a Carcass album. Nice. Yeah, and it's the same kind of thing. It's just like, I can't speak of your experience, but um, you would never associate it outside the name. Yeah. You go there, the, their logo, they're like some of the nicest people in the world, and then... You're like, oh, and then you buy the album from Carcass. and you're like, well, How? <laughs> Who listened to this and went, coffee? Yeah. And like I said, man, being able to be a part of something that gives back and influences other people or resonates with other people or brings some of the joy or ease or comfort or, what you know, all of the emotions that I took from music growing up and how it, and, you know, all the bands and artists I listened to, to be able to be a part of something that gives back is, that's kind of like the riches I think that Bob Marley was talking about.
0: All right, that is our show. Huge thanks to Ryan for coming on. I think we probably talked another 20 minutes after we stopped recording, so we were just having a good time. Uh, if you are new to the show, please subscribe to it. Give us a five star rating on Apple. You can follow me at Sammy Warmhands on Instagram and uh, take a screenshot. Put us in your stories. Let people know that the podcast is out there. We're going to return with Matt Embry from RX Bandits. But first, I'm going to play you out with the Distiller's Noise track, co mixed by Ryan Sin. This is Death Sex.